Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Mostly on Trade Talks, we talk about the flows of goods and services, of stuff. This week, we're going to talk about the flow of money or profits around the world. We'll talk about a big change to the US tax system that became a law at the end of 2017 called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we'll talk about the best ways to tax multinational companies. To help us explain, we've brought in an expert. Kimberly Clossing is the Thurman Miller and Walter Mintz Professor of Economics at Reed College. Kimberly has a new book titled Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration, and Global Capital. Kimberly is a rare type of international economist. Not only is she an expert on the trade stuff, but she has also published widely on international taxation and its impact on multinational corporations. Kimberly, hello. Hello. It's great to be here. First question, hopefully an easy one. Why do multinationals matter? Yeah, so in terms of your podcast, I think they matter because they're a big part of international integration. If you look at multinationals, their sales abroad are often larger than our exports, and foreign multinational sales here are often larger than our imports. Uh, But beyond that, they also do a lot of the trade for the United States. Both foreign and U.S. multinationals are doing about 70% of all of our trade. Multinationals provide us with a lot of great goods and services, innovation, job creation, a source of competition, but they also come with concerns too. We worry that multinationals might get too big or too powerful and that that could hurt our ability to have effective regulations or to raise tax revenue for the government. Over the last few decades, the flow of goods going around the world has increased a lot and American multinationals employ people all around the world. Do the taxes that they pay actually reflect where they're doing this economic activity? Well, the places where they locate economic activity are often the places where you would suspect that they would. Big economies that have lots of people, rich consumers, good labor forces. But the places where they book their profits tend to be a very different set of countries. If you look at U.S. multinational companies, about half or actually a little more than half of their profits are booked in just seven havens. And if you add up the population of those countries, it's less than that of California. So they're clearly distorting the profits to move them toward low tax countries, even though their activities are very much where we would expect them to be. And these havens are countries like who? Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Ireland, Singapore, Switzerland, the Caymans, and Bermuda are the big seven. Can we talk a little bit about how these big multinational companies shift their tax liabilities from one place to another? Do they use trade to do this, or is it just through some sort of accounting technique? And so historically, trade was a bigger part of how they did this. So if you go back in time, companies would spend some effort to manipulate the prices on their intra-firm transactions. So if you were sending something to an affiliate in a low-tax country, you would underprice it to make them look more profitable. And when you bought something from the Bermuda affiliate, you would overprice it. And that was able to sort of shift a lot of profit. As time went by, the companies came to find even easier ways to shift profit abroad. So, for instance, they could locate intangible 
source of value in the haven. So if the Bermuda affiliate owns the patent and then the patent receives the royalties, then voila, you've moved a lot of money to Bermuda without having to tinker with these interfirm trade transactions. The Bermuda case is interesting because if you look at the profits of U.S. multinational companies in Bermuda, just those profits are 20 times the size of the entire Bermuda economy. So that's telling you that something isn't, isn't quite real there. Have you tried to quantify the effects of all this financial jiggery-pokery? Yes. So if you look at the U.S. multinational community, it looks like they're shifting enough profit offshore that that's costing the U.S. government about $100 billion a year, and that was prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. These activities also cost foreign governments a lot of revenue, and I estimate that that cost is about $200 billion a year. So worldwide, we're looking at about $300 billion worth of lost tax revenue in countries that aren't tax havens. Now, the tax havens do get some benefits from being havens and some revenue themselves, and that isn't you know, uh, analyzed in that particular analysis. Has the economic significance of this issue of profit shifting for tax purposes been growing over time? Yes. Countries have seen a big increase in corporate tax base erosion due to profit shifting activities. And those activities have become a lot larger over time, which has made these questions of how to tax foreign income more vexing. There are several reasons why profit shifting has become more important in recent years. First, The source of value has shifted more and more towards intangible value rather than tangible value. And an intangible good, uh, like intellectual property, for instance, it's much easier to assign easily to Bermuda than moving an entire factory to Bermuda, for instance. So the role of intangibles is a big part of this. The third reason why profit shifting has been increasing in recent years is due to the spread of tax avoidance knowledge in the corporate community. So early companies that figured out how to best game the system to get the profits offshore shared their expertise with accounting firms and others that then spread that throughout the corporate community. So the tax avoidance itself became something that that really spread. Let's talk about the ways in which governments have tried to tax all this shifting income. So suppose you're a government trying to tax Trade Talks, Inc. And Trade Talks, Inc. has some domestic income in the U.S., from all those podcast subscribers and advertising revenue, I guess. But it also has a ton of foreign income or foreign profits. Now, some of that might be because there's genuine stuff going on over there, but some might be because of our sneaky accountants registering the Trade Talks trademark in Bermuda. And the government has to decide how to treat each kind of income. Yes. So one approach is you could sort of give up on taxing foreign income and have a territorial system where you purport to just tax the domestic income and not tax the foreign income. Now, that sounds simple, but if you look at the true territorial systems that are on the ground, many of them also come with exceptions. So they don't tax the good income, but the bad income, however they define it, is often taxed currently, which without the benefits of of deferral while the while the income is sitting abroad. So territorial systems come in a lot of different flavors. And I think that nuance is important because if we just sort of fetishize the label territorial versus worldwide, we miss a lot of that subtlety. And can I just check that the problem with a territorial system is that if you just go for a pure territorial system, the companies will just aggressively engage in precisely the kind of profit shifting that we're seeing now. And that will 
you know, whittle away your tax base. Yes, and that's why so many countries have actually implemented exceptions to this territorial system so that if companies shift income abroad, for instance, to tax havens, that income might actually be eligible for taxation right away, even in a purportedly territorial system because of these exceptions. And to confirm, the one of the advantages of that territorial system is that you wouldn't discourage companies from locating within your country. So you tell the companies, don't worry, you can locate here and your your foreign profits are n- nothing to do with us. And so they feel comfortable about locating their headquarters in your country. Whereas if you say, we're going to get all of your income, the companies might say, mm, we think we're going to put our headquarters somewhere else. Yes, I mean, that's the argument. I mean, one thing we should distinguish here is the difference between locating a headquarters and locating economic activity, right? So a country might be tax sensitive to the type of tax system when thinking about the headquarters location. But remember that many companies don't actually have a lot of control over their headquarters location. They start off somewhere because that's where they were founded. And they tend to stay there until they're either acquired by a foreign firm or they decide to expatriate. But we don't tend to see a lot of companies switching nationality willy-nilly. So sometimes this emphasis on on corporate inversions, I think, is a, is a little bit overblown relative to the scale of the number of, of, of companies that do choose different countries. There were some high-profile examples, though, right, of, of companies inverting and, and putting their headquarters in, say, Ireland. Yes, that's true. But another way to combat corporate aversions, aside from adopting just the we'll never tax foreign income approach, is through regulatory reform. For instance, in the last years of the Obama administration, there were two rounds of regulatory changes in the Treasury did that dramatically reduced the ability of U.S. companies to invert for tax purposes alone. And again, there's nothing wrong with corporate reorganizations if they're done for good economic reasons, but we don't like to see companies just sort of reshuffling their ownership for solely tax purposes. And that was the motivation behind those regulations. Okay, so sorry, I cut you off. What's the other option, the non-territorial option? Yes. So another option is to do a worldwide system. And again, uh, the worldwide system need not be pure, right? You can do a system where you say, okay, well, we normally tax your income abroad, but not all of it, or we wait until it's repatriated or, or, or some such. I guess one thing I would point out is that these labels can be quite deceptive. So there are all these different categorizations, but almost every country has some sort of hybrid of a territorial and a worldwide system. And another approach is, of course, to try something entirely different. One is a formulary approach where you basically tax companies based on where their economic activities are, not where they book their profits. So for instance, if Nike earned $5 billion worldwide and half of their economic activity was in the United States, then we would then assert the right to tax half of that $5 billion. So by economic activity, what would that mean? Is that the countries where Nike is actually making the sneakers or is it the countries where they're selling the sneakers? Well, it depends on how you do the formula for the formulary system. So you could have a formula that was part where their employees are and part where their customers are. And actually, that would be my preferred approach if I were doing it, some demand side and some supply side to thinking about where the value of the firm is. So in that case, you'd say, okay, well, Nike has, let's say, 40% of their customers in the U.S. and 60% of their employees. So if we average that 
50% of their income would be taxable in the U.S. I can predict big fights about how that formula is drawn up. <laughs> yes. I mean, in the U.S. state experience, because uh, this is exactly how we tax national companies in U.S. states, because it's kind of impractical to say, like, what income did you earn in, in Oregon versus all of these other states. But U.S. states have have gradually changed the formula toward sales, actually, and away from these productive factors to basically encourage production in their states, but to still have a corporate tax base by taxing companies based on on what fraction of their sales are in any particular state. Okay. That's a, a lot of theory. To recap, governments might want only to tax your domestic profits, though in practice, there might be limits on what exactly you can shift overseas as some foreign profits might still get taxed. Or they might tax all of your profits no matter where they're earned. But one option there might be to allow the company to hold the money offshore and only pay the tax when the profits are brought home or repatriated. So let's talk about what happened in the in the U.S. Let's start with how the U.S. taxed corporate profits before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or TUCJA. In theory, before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we had a worldwide system, which implies that the foreign profit as well as the domestic profit can be taxable by the U.S. government. And in theory, we had a 35% tax rate. And I use the term in theory because in reality, neither of those provisions is a good reflection of what we were doing. So a lot of the foreign income would stay offshore. And while it was offshore, it didn't accrue any U.S. tax liability. So you could leave the income in places like Bermuda or the U.K. without ever paying U.S. tax. Also, the 35% is very misleading because if you look at the actual tax rates paid by U.S. multinational companies, they were also far lower than that, in part because they were able to move profits offshore and get a much lower tax rate. So there were even big multinational companies that would often get single-digit tax rates in an effective sense, even though their statutory rate was 35%. And that's the old system, this worldwide system where companies could shift profits overseas and then avoid paying taxes on those profits by basically holding them abroad. Okay, so then comes this tax reform bill in late 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. What did that do? So what the bill did was it reduced taxes on corporations substantially, lowered the statutory rate from 35 to 21 percent. And this is creates a big revenue cost of about $650 billion. And that's net of the base widening that the bill also did by doing things like repealing the production, income deduction, and some other smaller measures. So by widening the base, what they mean by that is that more economic activity is going to be subject to these taxes than before. Yes. I mean, the the statutory rate is lower, but they've taken out some of the things that used to narrow the the corporate tax base on the domestic side. Um, And so far, this is just... The domestic side. On the international side, they also did some novel things. Um, they changed the U.S. label, again, from worldwide to a territorial system. So they're exempting foreign income from taxation. But again, not purely. Only some foreign income is exempted from taxation. Other foreign income falls prey to a minimum tax. Um, and there's also other base protections on the international side um, that attempt to claw back some of the revenue that you lose when you move to a territorial system. But if you look at the international provisions on net they lose a small amount of revenue, about $14 billion over 10 years. So it's clear they're not, on net, raising a lot 
of money um, if you put to one side this this third thing that the tax system did, uh, sorry, that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did, which is a one-time repatriation uh, tax on income that had already been offshore. Now, um, that raises revenue about $300 billion over 10 years, but it's a tax cut relative to prior law where that income should have been taxed at a higher rate and instead is taxed at 8 or 15%. So um, I tend to put that revenue to one side when I'm looking at these at these uh, calculations because that is just a one-time tax and it's a tax cut relative to prior law. But on an ongoing basis, the international provisions don't don't raise revenue. They they lose a little bit. So before we had a system where, in theory, all income was taxable. So we had a worldwide system. Now we have a system where only income in the U.S., in theory, is taxable, but there are these exceptions so that foreign income is taxed through some provisions. One is that it's taxed at this minimum rate. Two, if you bring it back, there's a one-time tax on you reshoring all the cash that you were hoarding overseas because you were just waiting um, to bring it back and pay the, the full rate. And there's a third thing that I don't think you mentioned, which is the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. Could could you explain what that is? Yes. So this base erosion and anti-abuse tax is a very novel provision that hasn't been tried in other countries, but it's aimed at reducing the profit shifting of not just U.S. multinational companies, but also foreign multinational companies. So in either event, whether you're a foreign multinational or a U.S. multinational, if you make too many deductible payments to related companies. And the suspicion is if you're making too many of these payments, you're using that to to shift profit out of the U.S. base. And if you make too many of those payments, then it triggers this alternative minimum tax. So that's aimed directly at discouraging profit shifting. And an example there would be that Trade Talks has some competitor that is headquartered in France but they're earning a lot of podcast income in the United States from American listeners. This would be a way for the United States government to try to capture more of that income as tax revenue. That's right, because if the French headquartered trade talks competitor is shifting income out of the U.S. base, that wouldn't necessarily fall prey. In fact, it wouldn't fall prey to the other minimum tax that we were talking about earlier, this guilty or global intangible low-taxed income tax. Have you looked at the impact of any of these changes in the way that these multinationals are taxed? Yes. So, so far I have analyzed the reduction in the statutory rate and this global minimum tax that we refer to as the guilty. And those in combination should act to reduce profit shifting toward tax havens. The U.S. rate reduction reduces it somewhat because you're avoiding a smaller tax in the United States when you shift abroad. But bear in mind that most of the profit shifting is really going to havens, not to countries with 20% tax rates. So I think most of the action in terms of addressing profit shifting is really coming from this guilty provision or this global minimum tax. And what that does, it's a very interesting provision because it basically raises the tax rate if you earn income in Bermuda. You no longer get the zero rate because you have to pay the U.S. government now this 10.5% minimum rate. But it also changes your incentive to earn income in countries like Korea or Germany or France that may not be havens, of course, but that do generate 
foreign income. So let's say Trade Talks has an affiliate in France. It generates a bunch of foreign income. Now you've paid the French government some some French tax. You can use those tax credits to offset the tax that would have been due on your Bermuda income. And so effectively, if you think about the incentives of this guilty provision, I call it America last tax policy, because your first best is to earn the income in Bermuda, where you pay half the US rate. Second best is to earn the income in France, where you can have the side benefit of being able to offset this guilty tax that would be due. But if you earn the income in the United States, you pay the full US rate without any ability to offset the guilty tax. So it turns out that unless the foreign tax rate is above 52%, uh, you're better off earning the income abroad if you've got some haven income that you want to shelter from that minimum tax. So because you can use taxes paid in countries like France or Belgium as credits toward your minimum tax, there's actually a bit of an incentive built into earning profits overseas and not in the U.S., this seems to be an area where international coordination would be really helpful. So can, can you talk a bit about some of the efforts at international cooperation to try and deal with this issue? Recently, there's been an effort that was led by both the OECD group of rich countries and the G20 big countries. And they got together to sort of talk about how to address this base erosion and profit shifting problem. It's actually called the BEPS project for base erosion and profit shifting. And they came up with about 2,000 pages of guidelines to help countries enforce this current system, basically, of, of taxing multinational income. Some people take heart from the fact that they were able to come together and sort of think about this problem seriously, and, and I'm one of those people. But I also think that the very fact that it takes 2,000 pages of guidelines to try to tell governments how to enforce this system probably means that we need some more fundamental reform. So what I would ideally like to see in the future is a, is a similar project by similar leaders that was based around getting a, a tax system that was simpler and easier to enforce without 2,000 pages of guidelines. On Trade Talks, we like to imagine fantasy worlds of international cooperation where countries get along and we get economic efficiency improvements resulting from that. So the United States, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, clearly isn't the only country out there doing this kind of thing. You hear about lots of countries making changes to their tax laws, trying to capture more of the income of these big international firms. Is there anything going on here where we might need to be worried about this going too far? Yes. So um, one of the cautions here is that the international tax system in general tries to avoid situations where everybody's taxing the same income. And so historically, we've done that either by exempting foreign income from taxation, in which case only one country is taxing it, or providing tax credits for the taxes you pay to another government. And so measures like that can sort of make sure that the same income isn't taxed by multiple governments. But there is some concern right now that in the corporate community especially that if, if every country sort of jumps on this bandwagon in an uncoordinated fashion that you could end up with some double taxation. I, I will sort of wait and see if that happens. My general suspicion here is that the companies are going to be agile enough to avoid those sorts of outcomes, um, both politically and economically. Kimberly, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Kimberly Klausing at Reed College for joining us to help us do our taxes. Trade Talks Inc. is very grateful. Do read her new book, Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration and Global Capital. It is a great book, but it won't help you avoid paying your taxes. And as always, 
A big thanks to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to taxes, paying them twice is better than... Hold on.